Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Layla Din Osman, Dr. Mary Simray McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Vrend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. Hello, I'm Dr. Layla. We are so thankful to have as our guest today, Dr. Don Hebner. Dr. Don Hebner is a psychologist, parent coach, and author from Sacramento, California. She has written several award-winning self-help books in the area of childhood anxiety. My colleagues and I own several of her books, which we often recommend to our clients, including her best-selling book called What to Do When You Worry Too Much, and another called Outsmarting Worry. She has a brand new series out for kids called Dr. Dawn's Mini Books About Mighty Fears, which covers a variety of topics, including health anxiety and trying new things. We absolutely love her books because they're easy to read, include child-friendly pictures and illustrations, and follow evidence-based practices backed by research. Dr. Hebner is a world-renowned public speaker and has been featured on the Today Show, in Parents Magazine, and her TEDx talk called Rethinking Anxiety has been viewed over a million times. Our podcast has several episodes on childhood anxiety, which have been our most popular to date. Today, however, we'd like to focus on the importance of intentional practice in the treatment of childhood anxiety disorders and how parents can help their children set up intentional goals. Welcome, Dr. Hebner, to The Coping Toolbox, um, our podcast. Uh, So today we were thinking about discussing this idea of intentional practice when we're working with kids with anxiety, right? So um, maybe we can start with a little introduction about what anxiety is in kids and how it presents. So anxiety is what we call what happens when kids think that there might be a danger and danger is really broadly defined. So anything that could end up hurting or embarrassing or making you feel unsure or bad in some way sets off an alarm within the brain and it leads to a number of physiological responses, heart pounding and stomach feeling bad and worrying about what's potentially going to happen. Would you say anxiety is really common in kids? It is. It is very common. Yeah. Um, And kids can be anxious about all kinds of things. Some anxiety is normal, right? And some is really problematic. And the distinction is not so much what the anxiety is about. It's instead how much it's interfering with a child's life. So that's a really good point, uh, Dr. Hebner. So this idea of In small amounts, it could be okay, depending on the situation, but when it interferes with things like functioning or ability to go to school or try new things, that's when we know it's more of an issue. That's right. And anxiety has a way of kind of piggybacking onto actual dangers or actual potential problems and magnifying them, 
right? So again, it's really important not just to pay attention to what the content of anxiety is, but also to what's happening because of the anxiety. How is it interfering? Yeah, that's a really good point. So as I mentioned in the introduction, my colleagues and I love your book so much. We use them all the time in our in our practice with clients. In one of your books called What to Do When You Worry Too Much, you talk about worries, um, kind of like this analogy of it being like a tomato plant, right? And I think that's so cute and such a great way to talk about anxiety with kids. Can you explain that reference to us a little bit? Yes. So I'm always trying to find ways to get kids to relate to the content or the concepts that go into the techniques that are used to change your relationship with anxiety. So the idea that anxiety is like a tomato helps kids, a tomato plant helps kids to recognize that a tomato plant grows when it's tended to, it grows when it's nurtured. So if you water it and you give it sunlight, it's going to get bigger. And it's the same with anxiety, not with water and sun, obviously, but if you tend to it, if you listen to it and obey it and cater to it, it's going to get bigger. And it's sometimes tricky for kids to really get that concept because when they do listen to their anxiety, it initially quiets down. It actually seems like the most effective way to get rid of anxiety is to obey it. But it's that's effective in the moment in quieting anxiety, but it makes anxiety a thousand times worse in the long run. It's like you're feeding the anxiety and that's ultimately going to make it bigger. I love that analogy with the tomato plant. It's such a great way to uh, to get kids to understand that idea. Okay. Um, so my next question for you is this idea of intentional practice when we're working with kids with anxiety. Um, and I, I was hoping you could explain a little bit by what you mean by intentional practice, either for parents or for um, people working with kids with anxiety. Sure. So anxiety is really uncomfortable and kids who struggle with it spend a lot of time trying to avoid it, trying to avoid setting their anxiety off. And sometimes they're not successful with that and anxiety comes and that's an opportunity to practice doing um, something to manage it differently. But if you're largely operating by trying to avoid anxiety and just trying to deal with it when it comes to visit you, you're not going to get enough practice in, in using skills or using techniques to better manage anxiety. So it's important to intentionally kind of court anxiety or step towards situations that are likely to trigger anxiety. And when you choreograph that, when you make the practice intentional, it does two things. One is it allows for more frequent practice. And the other is that allows you to titrate the practice. So that, you know, the idea is to have kids learn how to get used to the things that they're anxious about, to learn to move towards rather than away. And it's most realistic to have kids do that just a little bit at a time. And so when you're doing intentional practices, kind of arranged choreographed practices, you can start with really, really small challenges and build from there. Mm -hmm. I love that explanation. So this idea of baby steps to get 
toward this goal of of getting over your fear, right? And intentionally creating those steps and planning for it. I think the planning phase of working toward eliminating anxiety is is critical, right? So having a plan. Um, So you kind of touched on this in your answers in the previous questions, but um, my next question is about how common is it for kids to want to avoid fears or run away from, you know, what they sense is dangerous? um, And why is their brain telling them to do that? Yeah, so it's really common. It's kind of the default. Um, So our brains aren't very good at distinguishing between actual danger and potential danger. And anxiety is about potential danger or the perception of the potential danger without um, there being actual imminent danger. But because our brains don't distinguish between those things, it seems to a child when they have like an alarm go off in their head, they start to feel anxious. It seems like they're actually in danger. And so running away seems the necessary thing to do. Avoiding seems the necessary thing to do. And Um, when a brain alarm happens, when a child uh, thinks that they might be in some kind of danger, broadly defined, that sets off the fight, flight, or freeze response, which means that physiologically, we feel compelled, we feel driven to either run away and escape, to fight off whatever the danger needs to be, or to just be frozen in place. Um, And we see all of those with kids. Sometimes we see multiple, you know, parts of fight, flight, or freeze at the same time. Right. And I think it's so important to highlight again, you mentioned it before, but this idea that avoiding what we're fearful of does work in the short term, right? Because all of a sudden, it's not around us anymore. We're not in that situation. Um, But the problem is long term, as you said, we never learn to not be fearful of, of that situation or event, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So there are really two problems with avoidance or with running away from the things that we're afraid of. One is that that does bring relief. And because it brings relief, it's reinforcing, right? So we avoid, we feel better, and then we think we always have to avoid. The other problem is that when we avoid, and then the bad thing that we were worried about doesn't happen, it makes children think, oh, good thing I avoided that situation. That's why I stayed safe when really they weren't in any danger to begin with. So it reinforces the notion that there was danger and the avoidance was necessary when actually there wasn't danger and the avoidance wasn't necessary. So yeah, avoidance is is common and it's hugely problematic. It's what keeps anxiety locked in place. Right. And it's such an instinctual response in the face of real danger, right? Like if you're mm-hmm. walking down the street and a car is about to hit you, I hope you're, you know, going to jump out of the way and, and be fearful, yes. right? So there's yes. this instinctual response there. But like you said, um, often with anxiety and kids, it's not real danger. It's misinterpreted right. danger. And so if you don't stay in the situation, then you never learn that it wasn't scary after all and nothing bad happened. And so, you know, I think you're touching on something really important, which is that it's really useful to help kids understand something about what's happening in their brains and to normalize it, you know, to talk about we have an alarm in our brains that's set up to warn us if there might be danger. It's a good thing we have that alarm. We need to have it. And sometimes that alarm makes mistakes. Sometimes there are false alarms when we feel like we're in danger, but we're not actually in danger. And so we're learning how to tell the difference between true dangers and false alarms. But we want to normalize and we want to kind of help kids understand what it is that's happening within their brains. 
That makes a lot of sense. That's a really good point. Um, so we touched a little bit on this idea of why it's so important to face your fears or to do what we call exposure, so not to run away from danger, and this idea of intentionally setting up that practice or those goals to face your fears and not avoid things that are fearful. Um, my next question for you was, what role do safety behaviors play in anxiety? Like, do you see a lot of safety behaviors happening? Yeah, so let's maybe start with the definition of safety behavior. Um, so there's a loop that holds anxiety in place. And the loop begins with the perception of possible danger, which leads to fear. And that makes sense. Anyone who thinks that they're in danger is going to be feel afraid. Um, and so that leads to the temptation to do something protective, self-protective. And that's what a safety behavior is. So a safety behavior is anything that's designed to protect you from what seems to be the danger and to bring relief to help you to feel better. And safety behaviors are really common and they seem like they work. They feel protective to children and they definitely do reduce the anxiety in the moment, but they're problematic because it keeps this loop, this cycle going. So the main action in terms of trying to help kids um, learn how to manage anxiety differently and to help actually reduce the anxiety in the long run, the main action has to center around safety behaviors, identifying what those safety behaviors are and chipping away at them over time. And so what would you say would be the most common safety behaviors you see in kids? For sure, we've, we've touched upon avoidance or running away from danger. Yeah, avoidance is a really big one. Reassurance seeking is a really common safety behavior. So, you know, asking a parent or another adult, are you sure this is okay? Or am I going to be okay? Are you sure such and such is going to happen? Asking for that reassurance over and over and over again. And then there are lots of safety behaviors that are specific to whatever the fear is, right? So um, a child who has a significant fear of getting sick, for example, of throwing up, might have safety behaviors like they don't eat any of the foods the last time they ate when they were sick, or they won't wear the clothing that they wore the last time they got sick, or they won't sit on the part of the couch that they sat last time they got sick. There's often sort of a superstitious element to safety behaviors, but they're things that kids get really committed to doing, thinking that those things are necessary and protective. And as long as kids continue to do those things, that keeps the cycle going. Right. And I think that kind of leads me to my next question about how parents can help their children. So not only in facing their fears, but also reducing some of those safety behaviors through intentional practice. Right. So parents almost always end up accommodating safety behaviors. And they do that coming from a place of love. They see that their child is panicking and suffering and that's distressing for everyone. And so they end up allowing the safety behaviors, participating in them, facilitating them, because they're trying to relieve their child's suffering. So it's important to understand that the mistakes parents made, because it is a mistake to accommodate safety behaviors, come from a well-intentioned place. 
What's more helpful is to teach children about all of this, teach them about their brain alarm, teach them about the fact that there are false alarms, teach them what a safety behavior is, and then work out very specific ways to practice moving towards rather than away from the things that they fear. And then if you've taught all those things in advance, in the moment that a child is feeling nervous about something and and reaching for their safety behaviors, parents can remind their children, uh, 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 that's your worry talking to you. This is a safety behavior. If you do that, you're going to be feeding your worry, right? Um, it, it doesn't work particularly well to try to do that in the moment if you haven't laid the groundwork. But if you have laid the groundwork, that absolutely is something you can do as a parent. And the goal is to remain empathic, right? There's no place for punitiveness or harshness here. We want to remain empathic to to our children while not accommodating the safety behavior to to support your child, but not to support their anxiety. Right. And I I love all those suggestions. I think it's so critical, um, you know, when we're working with children with anxiety that parents get training to and become, you know, in a way, their own children's coach or, you know, therapist in a way, because they live their life with their children. They're there by their side when they're facing these fears on a day-to-day basis. And so um, as much as we're able to help them in, you know, select sessions and in clinical practice, it really is the parents who are holding their hand through the whole process. So having the parents have that knowledge, have those skills, such an important part of of treating childhood anxiety disorders, right? Absolutely. There's actually a whole treatment that's developed called SPACE that is entirely about teaching parents not to accommodate the anxiety, to still be kind and empathic with their children without uh, accommodating the anxiety. And it's found to be hugely effective, even when kids don't directly participate in the therapy themselves. One of the things that's important to keep in mind is that um, if the goal is to make the anxiety go away, we're invariably going to be accommodating safety behaviors. So, you know, if a parent sees their child really, really anxious, and that might trigger the parent's anxiety also, right? Um, and the parent might think, I just have to get my child to stop worrying. They're going to do that by reassuring or helping their child avoid because they're just trying to make the anxiety go away quickly. So instead, we want parents to kind of take the long view and to help their children build the skills that are going to help them respond differently when they have these brain alarms. And that's really what we're trying to do. And definitely parents need training and support in learning how to do that and learning how to manage their own anxiety, because that means tolerating your child's anxiety. You know, part of what we want to do with anxious kids is not send the message that the anxiety is a crisis. It's not a crisis, right? So anxiety feels dangerous, but it's not. It's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. But the anxiety itself isn't a sign of danger. It's it's a sign of a false alarm, right? And so we want to we want to help parents understand that they need to respond calmly to their child's anxiety and to help their child see that this is a really uncomfortable feeling you're having right now. This is a false alarm. We're not going to get we're not going to let worry be the boss of this. We're not going to let worry be in charge here, right? So there's a way that parents can be taught to be supportive in those ways. Mm-hmm. And that's such a, a good point, right? I think as parents, um, it's really easy to become 
activated or, or dysregulated when our children are upset because we love them. We hurt when they hurt. We want to Absolutely. resolve all their problems and make them feel better. And so again, you know, so much of the work is parents learning how to stay calm and having that bigger picture, like you, you mentioned in mine about, hey, what's the end goal here? And I really need to stay calm. And just because my child's upset doesn't mean I need to make it go away, right? To build that resilience, right? For them. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's such an important point that that parental piece is so important in terms of intentional practice and, you know, being really kind of planful about how you're going to do that can help the parents stay calm too. Like expecting your child will be upset or dysregulated will help you stay calm as a parent as well. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts around the use of incentives or rewards in this process? Yeah, so I get asked this a lot. Um, I think especially with children, it's fine to use incentives and rewards as long as you're rewarding the right thing. So you should never reward the absence of fear because that's not the point. What you're rewarding is practicing and using techniques or skills, right? So you can reward a child for talking back to their worry. You can reward a child for being brave. You can reward a child for taking on a challenge, even though they feel nervous, but you're not rewarding the absence of fear. I actually don't pay a whole lot of attention to whether or not the child feels afraid. And when a child um, comes to a session and says to me, you know, Dr. Hebner, I did such and such, and I didn't even feel scared. There's a part of me that thinks, shoot, that means the challenge wasn't big enough. I don't say that, but I'm I'm then busy trying to figure out how do I make the challenge a little bigger? Because the whole point is to do something even though you feel afraid. That's what helps to rewire the brain. It helps to the brain to learn that even though there's fear, there's no danger here, and this is a false alarm. So back to your question about incentives, though. Yes, absolutely. We can incentivize, but what we're incentivizing is practice and doing exposures. It's not the absence of fear. And we want to make sure that we're keeping the rewards the right size. So we don't want to do, you know, major break the bank kinds of rewards. That's not sustainable. It's not realistic or helpful. We want to be doing little things. And I try whenever possible to encourage activity-based rewards. So, you know, time with a parent, an outing of some sort, um, you can do sort of fun things like your parent's going to do your chores for the day, or you're going to have a backwards dinner with dessert first, like just little fun kind of perks and treats and things like that make really effective rewards for kids. And I think, you know, you touched upon a couple of really important points, this idea of keeping the experience positive and not negative, right? So rewarding, you know, effort and action versus the absence of fear. And then also like really gradually planning out the exposure in mini steps, right? So we're not going to inundate a child with a task that's too hard, right? Like face your worst fear day mm -hmm. one, you're going to do it in small right. steps and reward each step along the way. And, and that reward could be, you know, verbal praise or time spent together or whatever it may be. But um, keeping it positive and doing things in baby steps is so important in terms of um, practicing exposure or practicing um, facing your fears, because otherwise it can, you know, very quickly turn 
in a not so positive direction, right? Right. And so it's important to keep these practices brief, relatively brief and frequent. So, you know, let's say you have a child who has separation issues. And one of the things that happens is they can't navigate their house alone. Like they always need someone with them um, if they're going upstairs or going into another room. And so you're going to start doing some exposure around that. So practice might be that a child is running up the stairs and coming back down again and doing that over and over and over again for five minutes. And then you add to that, you know, you run upstairs and touch every doorknob and come back down, or you run upstairs and go into each room and take two breaths and come back down. So you're kind of sequentially adding to the difficult to the difficulty, making a little harder, a little harder. But the whole exposure session might be you're going up and coming back down you know, five times or 10 times, the whole thing takes maybe 10 minutes. Um, If you can incorporate it in some kind of game or something silly or art, if a child's into art, absolutely, that's a good thing to do. So it's frequent, relatively brief, element of fun, if you can do it, intentional practice. Absolutely. Um, So another question I had for you, and maybe we can tie that in to another question I have as well. But I thought we could spend a couple of minutes discussing what some possible setbacks may be when a parent is planning out some exposure therapy with their child or doing that gradual exposure. So um, we did talk a little bit here and there about some. So this idea of avoiding too much reassurance, um, seeking behavior from your child, giving them a step that's too difficult initially. So creating baby steps and keeping things positive. Can you think of other possible setbacks that often come up? Yeah, um, you know, children feel afraid in the midst of an exposure often. So they might, um, you know, be willing to do something or want the incentive enough to the, that they're willing to do something. And then in the midst of it, they balk, they get scared. Um, and so it's important for parents to not um, rescue at that point. You know, an analogy that I often use is, um, so exposure is essentially a habituation process. You're trying to desensitize a child to a situation and also to the nervousness that they're feeling. And that's analogous to getting used to the cold water in a swimming pool. So when you're doing an exposure, you're, you're trying to go into the pool in a step-by-step way, a little bit at a time. And as a parent, you're avoiding pushing your child into the water, right? Shoving them into the pool. And you're also trying to avoid letting them get out of the pool entirely. So you're trying to figure out how to, how to have them do small to medium sized steps. Children actually can help figure this out, right? So children as young as five can um, help to determine what's the right size step or what's the right next step. And as long as we talk about the aim is for medium steps. If we're going into a pool and we take teeny, 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 tiny steps, we're never going to get in deep enough to get used to the water. If we take steps that are too big, it's going to feel too cold and we're going to want to get out entirely. So we're trying to do medium size steps. And young kids, when they see that they're going to be able to have some amount of control over this process and their parents are kind of cheerleading and supporting, young kids are actually pretty good at saying what's a medium-sized step. And if they get into the midst of an exposure and it seems too hard... A parent can talk about, let's figure out how to take a single step back. Let's not get out of the pool entirely, but what's just a little step back that you can take. So something like, you know, having a parent be a little closer or a child, you know, do a little less of whatever the the exposure was about. Those are, those are perfectly effective things to do. 
And I know um, when working with kids, one way to set up those small, medium and big steps is to have them rate their anxiety levels, right? On a zero right. to 10 scale, or sometimes we use the analogy of a um, thermometer, right? So where on the thermometer right. is your anxiety uh, falling? And then parents can do that with their kids too, to help them plan out. Yeah. What is that, you know, small, medium or larger step? And let, where should we start right. when we're doing the exposure? So um, yes. yeah, that's all, you know, really, really important points. Um, another thought that I had as, as we were speaking is, uh, in terms of pitfalls is what happens when a parent also has the same fear or, you know, phobia about something and, and they're trying to do exposure with their child and they're also so nervous themselves or scared. Do you think there's ways around that situation? Yeah. So it's really common, you know, people come by their anxiety innocently, a combination of genetics and learning. Um, and for parents as well as for kids, anxiety gets reinforced by safety behaviors and avoidance. Um, so it's not at all unusual for anxious children to have anxious parents. And I find that when parents get on board with using techniques themselves. So, you know, if parents are willing to use self-talk themselves and do some of the regulating breathing mindfulness kinds of things themselves, and, you know, maybe even do actual exposures themselves, it makes things much more successful. If a parent has the exact same fear and that fear hasn't been addressed. So, um, you know, we might see that with something like the fear of flying or the fear of getting sick or, you know, something of that sort, fear of public speaking. If a parent has the exact same fear and they haven't addressed it, it's actually going to be pretty hard for the parent to effectively coach their child with exposure. So the parent might need to get some help and support to be able to um, help their child. That's sometimes motivation to parents. You know, oftentimes parents will address something that they've been avoiding on their own part for a long time in the service of their child. And that's great. Yeah. I agree with you. Um, and sometimes it may mean the other parent, if there is another parent present or another caregiver, um, may be willing to do some of the mm -hmm. exposure with the child if, if it's something a parent is really struggling with, right? Like in, I have in mind, for example, um, children with needle phobias, but the parent also has a needle phobia. So, you know, when we're working together, I might suggest that mm -hmm. if there's a parent without one, right. um, that might be the better parent to try some of the exposure therapy so they can stay calm um, when the needle is happening. So maybe we can talk a little bit about a specific example, um, one that commonly comes up and I thought would be a good one to discuss is a child who's fearful of trying new things. So uh, maybe we can go over how a parent can help coach their child through intentional practice, um, face their fears. Yeah. So this is another place where it's important for both kids and parents to have some understanding of why does this fear happen? Um, you know, parents often try to approach it using logic, like it doesn't make sense because, you know, my child's never had a terrible experience doing a new thing and they try to talk their child into not being afraid, which isn't helpful. So developing an understanding of why this fear arises is important. And the reason is pretty straightforward. It is that we have a part in our brain that equates new with dangerous. Um, and that evolved over time for necessary reasons, because way back at the time of cave people, new things were potentially dangerous. And so we learned to be on the alert 
for things that are new and unfamiliar and to feel a little apprehensive around those things. So fast forward, you know, long period of time, our modern day brains still have vestiges of that where we're aware of something being new and unfamiliar and it makes us feel unsure. And for many, many, many people, uncertainty is a fast track to anxiety. So for children, they see something as new and they equate it with dangerous. So one of the important steps is to help kids just develop kind of a intellectual understanding that new and dangerous are two different things. Um, and, uh, you know, we can talk about what's happening in their brain to make that mix up happen, but the reality being that new and dangerous are two different things. And then exposure has to do with having kids intentionally do new things, starting not with big things. So you wouldn't start with, you know, you're going to go to a new soccer practice or you're going to go to a library hour on your own. Those are too big, right? So we want kids to start with little, little new things, right? Um, go to your friend's house rather than having your friend come to your house or eat a food that you've never eaten before. Or, you know, th there are like thousands of new things that a child could try. It doesn't have to be the specific new thing that your child is afraid of, because what you're doing is exposing exposing them to newness and having them see that the apprehension that they might feel is misplaced because nothing bad ends up happening. Um, and you just want to do that over and over and over again, starting with really, really, really little new things and building on that so the child is eventually able to take bigger steps into the unknown, doing things that are unfamiliar for them. Mm -hmm. And using self-talk is an important part of that, you know, teaching kids to say to themselves, new is different from dangerous. I'm, I'm nervous because this is new. Right. And to remind themselves about that. So like talking back to anxiety, challenging some mm -hmm. of those beliefs or those thoughts that may be kind of irrational or towards the anxious kind of way of thinking right. about things. Um, right. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think often what we see happens is the child is reluctant to try the first few steps when you're starting to do exposure and really nervous and really overwhelmed and it's really stressful. And then by the time they're building their way up the steps, right up to more difficult, mm -hmm. progressively difficult mm -hmm. steps, they build their confidence and they build their resilience and skills. And so when they finally get to that really hard thing, like going to, you know, that new soccer game or situation, it doesn't feel as scary as it did initially, right? Absolutely. And so it's important with exposures to keep in mind that anytime you're doing an exposure, you're actually exposing your child to two things. One is whatever the specific situation is, and the other is their internal state. And so when children are repeatedly exposed to feeling kind of apprehensive, to feeling unsure, to feeling kind of nervous, that helps them develop more resilience and, you know, stick-to-itiveness around apprehension, uncertainty, nervousness. And that's a really important piece of the exposure. So absolutely, we see that kids might be really nervous in the smaller steps and maybe less nervous with the bigger steps because they've developed some of that ability to sit with their uncertainty or to sit with their nervousness. Yeah. Learning to tolerate the discomfort, right? right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I agree. Okay, Dr. Huebner, um, you know, this has been a great discussion. You know, at the end of each of our podcast episodes, we love to end them on a note of three coping skills that families and parents can, uh, you know, like take home messages that they can remember from our episodes. So could you please leave us with three coping tools um, for our listeners today? 
Sure. Uh, so I would say the first is to remember that there are false alarms, meaning times that you're afraid, but you're not actually in danger. Second would be to take small steps towards the things that you fear. And the third would be to practice being brave, to kind of do intentional practice. That's great. That's great. I love those. Well, thank you so much to all our listeners. Thank you so much, Dr. Hebner, for joining us today. And uh, to all our listeners, please don't forget to check out the links to our episodes. We're going to include links to Dr. Hebner's uh, talks and new books out. Um, they are excellent resources, so please check them out. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. <laughs>